Hello and welcome to IR Thinker, where international affairs are discussed. Today we're going to speak about terrorism, extremism, and one very interesting book written by Anne Speckhardt, who is my guest for today's episode. Anne, welcome. Thank you, Martin. It's nice to be here with you, virtually. Anna is in the United States. Uh, she is a director of the International Center for the Study of Violent Extremism and adjunct associate professor of psychiatry at Georgetown University Medical School and Security Studies. She has extensive experience in working in Europe, the Middle East, the former Soviet Union. She also served as a chair of the NATO Human Factors and Medicine Research Group, Psychosocial, Cultural and Organizational Aspect of Terrorism, and also as a co-chair of the NATO-Russia Social Sciences, support for military personnel engaged in counterinsurgency and counterterrorism operations. And let's start with the first question. How have you come across terrorism and study of terrorism? Well, I um, was married and moved overseas with my husband. He was a U.S. ambassador. So I shut down my private practice. I was a clinician for 20 years. I'm trained as a psychologist. And uh, I had to reinvent myself. So I started doing research. And uh, we were first in Belarus. Then we were in Belgium and later in Greece. But uh, uh, when 9-11 happened, I started to study terrorism. And I also was working closely with NATO before 9-11. And I had been asked to look at all the intersections be between religion and terrorism. And at that time, the literature was quite small, so I read it all. The, the background you have, you traveled across the world and you returned because something major happened in the United States. That's true. And also in Russia. So first I started with working with uh, people that were affected by terrorism. We have a huge expat community in Belgium. So I was working with the embassy, helping people to deal with their responses to 9-11. I don't know if you're aware, but uh, Al-Qaeda announced that one month later on an exact date, they were going to attack NATO. So all the embassies around the world became militarized. Uh, anthrax was sent into some of them. In Brussels, we got fake anthrax. Uh, NATO had barbed wire and tanks around. Um, so people were scared. But then when Nordost happened, um, I volunteered myself to my Russian colleague because we were both post-traumatic stress disorder uh, experts to work with the hostages. And when I started working with the hostages with her, we found that these people had spent three days, some of them sitting right next to, and all of them observing suicide terrorists. So they could tell us how a suicide terrorist acted and what they said with bomb belts strapped on. So there's a lot of researchers like me that go around the world and ask terrorists how they think and feel, but not when they have a bomb belt strapped on their body. And then I was also teaching at the university in Brussels, and one of my students had been in a, in a bombing in Hebrew U, and he really wanted to study the Palestinians. So he dragged me off, and we went to Israel and ended up going about five trips into West Bank and Gaza. And there I interviewed hundreds of people that were involved in terrorism, from senders of suicide terrorists to uh, would-be suicide terrorists, um, to people that were assassins, uh, fighters, ideologues, leaders, uh, just regular, regular guys. 
In my case, for instance, when I was reading about terrorism and trying to understand the life of people, I, I was quite aware of all the aspects and how the system is. But once I went to Israel and I saw the daily life of people and what they have to face to, that's completely changed my life in understanding the terrorism. Well, it, it's even more than that. If you go to Israel and you see how the victims are dealing with it and the security services, but then if you cross over into Palestine and you uh, get a taste of the occupation and what the Palestinians are dealing with, uh, it opens your mind even further. And uh, it's, it's really interesting, all different facets of this issue. On the profile that I read about you, there is a written that you interviewed around 800 terrorists. Do you remember your first interview and how a person can interview a terrorist? Like how, what was the procedure? Well, um, when I went over to, um, first I interviewed hostages that were, um, had talked to terrorists. But then when we went into the Palestinian territories, I was quite honest and I told people that I wanted to talk to would-be suicide terrorists. I didn't think, at that time, journalists were doing that. And I didn't totally think through the ethics of it. Because once you've talked to a would-be suicide terrorist, should you turn him over to the security services? You know, you won his trust and got him to talk to you. And I'm skilled at that, because that's what I do as a psychologist. Um, so uh, I told people that, and everyone said, no one will talk to you. And uh, but then I got an offer. Would you like to talk to these uh, young men that had been put in prison? They were college students and they were arrested. This is during the second intifada. And um, I sat down with a group of them and was interviewing them one by one. And one of them told me how someone had been killed in a prison riot, a Palestinian. And I said, did you ever consider revenging or taking a, a suicide mission to revenge? And he said, I prefer not to say. And my psychologist self just spontaneously answered, you just did. And we both looked at each other really horrified. And then I said, um, this is what I came to study. And if you trust me, I'd really like to understand how you think and why you would consider giving your own life to do something like that. And you know, where, what are your red lines, that sort of thing. And he opened up and told me exactly what he was thinking about. And thankfully, all the people that um, he was going to volunteer himself to had been arrested. So he was stopped in his tracks. But that was a really thorny issue later because I didn't turn him into security. And um, later I heard that he himself got arrested and I was really relieved to hear that. And when you were interviewing for the first time, did you prepare your question in advance or there is no no sense, no meaning to prepare the questions because you don't you have no idea how the interview will be? Yeah, I would say um, now I have a set of questions that I generally ask, but my view of the best way to interview is to be uh, quite unstructured and that you should follow the person. So you have to meet them on some some place where the two of you have common ground. So when I go into prisons, usually it's, uh, how are you, are you okay? And to ask them about their family background first so that they um, can speak about that. 
And, um, but no, when I was going through Palestine, my um, questions were very open because I had no idea why people would do this. I would ask them what journalists were reporting. So for instance, there was this woman, I can't remember her last name right now, Barbara, she wrote Army of Roses. And um, she argued that women uh, volunteered themselves for suicide missions as a type of feminism. So I would ask people, I even carried her book with me and said, like I went to Wafa Idris's family and I said, uh, Barbara says that uh, Wafa volunteered herself for this reason. And they got so angry and they said, that's absolutely untrue. And I read passages out of her book to them and they just went crazy. So I would float things like, you know, this is the common, another thing that was going on at the time was that um, there were these huge martyrdom funerals and processions. So people were claiming the parents were glad and rejoiced when their child um, took part in a so-called martyrdom mission. And I would ask parents, is that true? And they would say, the Israelis came to bomb our house. Everyone came to take our furniture out of the house. And a procession uh, gathered around us and we were just swept up. We didn't have any chance to process our feelings. Some of them told off the Hamas leader or the Fatah leader that came. But generally, um, they uh, you know, said, no, no, of course we weren't glad. But, you know, so whatever was out there as a hypothesis or a, a assumption about suicide terrorism, I would ask. And in the beginning, I was mostly interested in suicide terrorism. But as time went on, I got interested in how people are recruited, um, what are their experiences in a terrorist group, and, and how the groups differ from each other. So I've interviewed people from ISIS, about 273, Al-Shabaab, 16, Al-Qaeda, a couple hundred. Uh, Palestinians, uh, hundreds, uh, I don't know. So, you know, you can compare and contrast between them. And then men and women, youth and elders. When you mention men and women, the fact that you are a woman in the Middle East interviewing terrorism, was that an issue? And if so, in which way? Well, that goes with this whole thing of um, why did people, why do people talk to me? And at first I, my students were, I, I went with these two students uh, throughout West Bank and Gaza, which is where I started. And um, I found that when I went out into these situations, um, I was quite intuitive and my intuitive skills were just really active. So they were amazed and they were like, how do you get these people to talk? And I thought, well, is it being a good psychologist? And then I also realized I really loved these students. They were, you know, people that I was mentoring and they loved me. And I thought, oh, I'm matching something in their culture, the mother. And, you know, they all love their mothers. They, they're trusting me based on that. Then later I started to think it's uh, microfacial, that they um, trust me because I have a trustable face. And at this point, I, I really think it's energy. I think people feel each other's energy and they do read you and see, you know, are you compassionate? Do you care? Or are you coming in like an interrogator and you're just trying to get something and you don't really care? Do you, are you looking for a headline? Are you looking for a piece of interrogation information? And um, in the movies, we see the interviewing terrorists. There's like one little room, a table, a chair, a little bit dark, you know, that sort of atmosphere. 
How was it in in a real life when you were interviewing those people? Well, if you if you um, if your viewers would like to read my books, uh, talking to Taurus goes into that quite a bit because I tried to take the um, the reader with me, and I wanted I I thought I'd like to read write this book for the person I used to be, that I grew up in the Midwest and I didn't know anything about the world. And, you know, come with me and go into this little village and go into this home and sit with this person or go into this prison cell. And most of my books, I make a lot of description about what the setting was and it's different in different settings. So I've sat down with terrorist leaders where there's a whole group of them and they all have their guns and um, we're talking as a group. Uh, one time I talked to uh, Zachariah Zubedi. I asked if I could uh, interview him and they decided based on a previous interview where I had read the mother really correctly and got an intuition about how she deals with her son's death. I think they were so touched by the interview, they decided to trust me, but they said, you know, he's coming with all his guys with their guns. And during the interview, he had a gun which was pointed sort of at me and he kept hitting it. And finally, my student said, would you please turn your gun in a different direction? Because I'm afraid it's going to misfire and kill my professor. And uh, in Iraq, we were in interrogation rooms. There were cameras, um, which I don't know if they were active or not. There was a desk, there was a guard. And I asked them to move the desk into the corner and to change the, the room setup because I don't like interviewing across the desk. And uh, in Israel, there was a desk set up and I said, I wasn't gonna sit behind the desk and this is in the prison. And there was a huge Israeli flag behind the desk. And I said, no, no, I'm not sitting there to interview Palestinians. So I came out in front of the desk and uh, sat close with them. You mentioned Iraq and there is a mention of uh, the detainee rehabilitation program in Iraq. And I'd like to ask, what was your role? And if it's not secret, can you please tell us how efficient this program was? During the Iraq, uh, the U.S. coalition invasion of Iraq, a lot of people were arrested and, you know, they were using IEDs. They were uh, putting bombs uh, in the ground and blowing up our vehicles and trying to kill U.S. troops and trying to kill police forces, uh, Iraqi forces. Um, so we ended up with about 23,000 detainees. And I was asked um, when I had about 400 interviews of terrorists, if I would, uh, by the US military, if I would consider coming to Iraq and helping the US military to put together a de-radicalization program. And at that time, Singapore had a de-radicalization program. Uh, Scotland Yard in the UK was working on uh, more of a prevention program to stop converts from going into uh, militant jihadism. And uh, Malaysia had a de-radicalization program, but there were very few and I knew about them. So I went in and I asked to talk to about 20 of the real bad guys uh, because I wanted to know, as a psychologist, what I wanna know is, can I reach you? I mean, can, is there, any point of contact, and then can that point of contact be expanded? And how do you think? Because the program I'm gonna to put together is gonna to depend a lot on where you're at and what you think. So we did that, and uh, Rohan Gunaratna was also present, and um, oh, I see there was a Sheikh that also worked with Rohan, but I don't remember his name right now. And um, 
the three of us gave our advice to the military and then the military put something together and we were all hired as contractors to go in. So I designed the first iteration of the detainee rehabilitation program. And basically it was the first of its type to use a lot of psychology. Um, the Saudis had their program and Yemenis had a program, but most of the de-radicalization programs relied on what's called Islamic challenge. So that is you have a scholar go into a prison cell or into a prison, meet with a radicalized prisoner and say, you know, brother, you're not following Islam correctly. This militant jihadist ideology you're following is not Islam. And if they're successful, they can talk the person out of it. And if the person is motivated by the ideology, you might have a success. But in Yemen, they found that a lot of people that went through their program just left the country and went and joined the jihad in, in Iraq. Same thing in Saudi. So I told the generals we needed to incorporate psychology as well. And that's what we did. But the program didn't get applied as designed because at that time, the politics shifted really rapidly and the awakening movement started. So you can imagine all of the families in Anbar that had um, people in Camp Buka or Camp uh, proper were really worried about their, their sons. And they said, yes, we will work with the coalition and we will throw Al-Qaeda out of this area, but you need to release our sons. We, we want our sons back. So what General Stone did is he um, kind of shortened the detainee rehabilitation program and it became very rubber stamped and they evaluated people and all the people that they didn't view as threats, they released. They did massive 5,000 at a time releases and the awakening program was a success. They did throw Al-Qaeda out of their area. Unfortunately, we saw it all come back with ISIS and um, so it wasn't a, a long-term fix, but we never have long-term fixes to terrorism if we have a, a corrupt and poor governments as they do in Iraq. Mm -hmm. Was this program also inspirational for other countries that you got like emails or some calls that can you please help us to establish a similar one? Well, I have been asked um, to um, consult with many different countries on all of these kind of issues um, from uh, repatriations now with ISIS. You know, we have, uh, I think it's about 10,000 foreign fighters still in Syria that are detained. So a similar situation. And they're radicalizing among themselves and radicalizing the youth that are growing up in the camps. And uh, so I've worked with a lot of European countries, mostly with Germany, on how to repatriate. I spent a month in Maldives a year ago. Maldives has a its own unique issues of they have a group of people that want to overthrow the government and put an Islamic state in place. And um, the majority of them are in prison, but they manage to communicate and run operations um, even though they're in prison and they radicalize people that are in shorter prison sentences. So I went and did an evaluation there and wrote a report. It's on our website and it's um, uh, the government was happy to have that. Um, I'm working in uh, Syria with the Kurds uh, that hold these uh, young boys and uh, and in the camps. The second program I, I was quite interested in, it's called the Breaking the ISIS Brand Counter-Narratives Project. 
And my question would be, what was the project supposed to break and did it? <laughs> it was supposed to break the ISIS brand. Okay. And, uh, I think many things have broken the ISIS brand. Uh, probably most importantly, ISIS itself broke its own brand. But, um, you know, when I interviewed 273 ISIS people, most of them in Syria and Iraq, but some of them already come home to Europe and the Balkans and, and in Central Asia, uh, I found that a great majority of them were following a dream. If they, if they went directly into ISIS, they believed uh, propaganda. They believed that there would be an Islamic state, that it would be run by Islamic ideals, and that they would be part of it and that it would benefit them. And that's not at all what happened. So I think of that, that dream that was being sold as the ISIS brand. And um, our point in breaking it was to use stories. And this whole idea came a long time ago before ISIS. Um, I was working with the UK Home Office. I used to live in Brussels because my uh, husband was posted at, uh, uh, in, at NATO. And uh, so I would come across and uh, advise the, the UK Home Office as they were putting their prevent program together. And at the time they said they had 200 people under surveillance. And I told them we need to put a program together for them. And as well, I was watching all the things that they were doing and they were putting websites together. They were getting scholars to talk about the big jihad, the little jihad, meaning violent, nonviolent jihad, but it was all cognitive. And I thought when I watch Al Qaeda films, cause I had friends in Brussels that were from the Middle East and they'd have Middle Eastern channels on, I would get totally hypnotized. There would be a nasheed being uh, played. There'd be a lot of action. Even though I couldn't speak Arabic at the time, um, I would watch it and I would see that they were trying to convince me that the coalition were liars. So I knew that terrorist groups were using emotions and music and promises and uh, adventure to, to sell their brand. So I thought, how could we fight against this? It also has to be emotionally evocative and it has to be a call to action. So we started making um, uh, counter narrative videos from my research interviews. And this was uh, with State Department. We worked with the US State Department. They, they funded us, but we did our own work. And what I would do is take a, a person's interview, and this is with their permission, and say, what was the original grievance? What, why did they, um, why were they looking for this? Then how did they believe, what promises were they believing in? What part of the dream did they think was gonna happen? What were their expectations? What were their actual experiences? And then I learned to ask at the end of the interview, if you're willing to be part of a counter narrative, would you give advice to others? So at some points I was asking these people to give advice when ISIS was still in its uh, strong days. And they would be saying, don't come over here. You're not helping Syrians. Uh, you're gonna get caught in a mire, it's a trap. They lie to you, things like that. Later when ISIS was territorially defeated, they would say ISIS is over. And I would say, well, that's not true. They're still on the internet calling people to action. And then they'd say, well, don't believe them and you know, so on and so forth. But we'd condense all this down to five minutes. And then we would put a lot of action film, a lot of it coming from ISIS, what they filmed themselves. And we would put music. And um, the whole idea was 
and we would give it a really disgusting name that sounded like it came directly from ISIS. So as I'm sure you're aware, Facebook, YouTube was flooded with um, ISIS propaganda. So we hoped that if you're out searching for your ISIS uh, YouTube videos, that ours pops up, the glorious cubs of the caliphate. And you watch this kid say, um, ISIS came to my area and I thought they were true Muslims and I believed in them, but they were uh, preparing us for suicide missions and the kids would cry and want to go and thought they're going straight to Jana. But some of them, they would explode without the kid even knowing it was going to happen. Some of them, they gave them drugs and it was my turn to go, but they sent me on leave home to my family. And I, my family found out and sent me to Turkey. It took me a year to figure out that they're the infidels. And um, so these were very emotional uh, short videos. And we will uh, post the ICSVE YouTube playlist at the end. So anybody can watch them. I think we made 250 uh, short videos out of our uh, ISIS interviews. And then we went on. Uh, I pivoted into studying white supremacist and anti-government militias and interviewed people from seven different countries, Canada, US, UK, Germany, uh, New Zealand, I believe. And um, we started the same thing, we call it Escape Hate. And I do wanna say um, our big sponsors for breaking the ISIS brand were the US State Department and the state of Qatar. And we're super grateful to both because we could have never done this without having sponsors. And when you're building a brand, you have some elements that support the brand itself. And from all the elements that you already mentioned, was there anything surprising for you that ISIS people were using to support that ISIS brand? Well, you learn as you go along. And I already knew a lot from watching Al-Qaeda films. Uh, those were more rudimentary. I found out with ISIS that a lot of the video editors were Syrian. And they also had this whole group of UK guys that came and they were skilled video editors. So they were really good. And um, they also used like special effects. And, you know, you don't have to be that skilled to know how to use those, but it made their videos really pop. Uh, also, ISIS brought in Islamic scholars that really knew how to twist scripture so that you would believe that this was Islamic. Um, Declaring a caliph and a caliphate was a smart move. And they had tried to convince people, there were so many people. And I've been in terrorism trials where the judge asks, how could you possibly believe that this was Islamic and that you were going to go live in a state and serve it and live peacefully when these people were beheading journalists like James Foley? And my question always is on behalf of the defendant, not that I'm defending terrorism, but defending somebody that was believing lies, is that Facebook and YouTube weren't on top of that either. And those are huge organizations. I mean, they didn't figure it out for a long time either. So how can you expect, you know, 17-year-old uh, Miriam to be able to discern what's, uh, what's truth and what's lies? So their, their brand had many elements, but certainly using religion and using really slick video and using emotions and promising people all kinds of promises. You're gonna be part of something. You're gonna be important. You're gonna be significant. You're gonna be belong. You're gonna be loved. 
And any problems you have in your life right now, you can just escape. Pack your bags, come here. We're going to take care of you. We're going to give you an apartment and a salary. You want to get married? No problem. We'll find you someone to marry. I mean, all your problems were taken care of if you bought into this ISIS dream. And you were going to be somebody. And not only that, you were going to succeed in this life. You were going to guarantee your afterlife. When I gave a lecture about the Great Britain, my students were surprised how the ideology blend with the current British problems and issues. And they offered the solution for that as well. So in, in some way, it wasn't like pure Islamic teaching or preaching, but that was sort of like a social science teaching that for many students in the UK was very surprising how sophisticated, you know, the, the attitude is from those people. Because some of them, they expect only those, you know, propaganda slogans. And I always say there's four things that make a terrorist. There's a group, because very few people can work without a group. Right. Uh, then there's an ideology. And the ideology of terrorists is almost always defensive. And the ideology is what convinces you you can use violence and you should. So, you know, even with soldiers, we have to convince them to kill. And if you can convince people you're defending, you're defending Muslim women from rape, you're defending against a horrible West that's uh, engaged in sin, and you're, engaged, you're defending our religion, which is under assault, uh, you're defending people that are being chemical bombed by Assad, um, things like that. So the group, the ideology, then social support. If a lot of people are believing this and it's spread all over, you know, it's on Facebook, it's on YouTube, everybody's sharing it and it seems to be like the thing. Uh, it's a lot easier to join. And then whatever's inside of you. So uh, terrorists are always exploiting grievances and vulnerabilities and um, motivations. So, you know, with Muslims, you can pick any uh, regime that's totalitarian and oppressive and point to it, or you can point to the mistakes of Western powers, you can point to history, and um, and you can argue this. And, you know, just in general, with all these groups, people want to belong, they want to feel significant, they want um, uh, positive experiences, they want to feel dignity, they want purpose in their lives. Before we go on to speak about your book, which was published recently, there is one sensitive topic I would like to speak about, and that's women as terrorists. Well, terrorism is more of a man's game, and uh, we tend to find men having the aggressor role more often. And we're, as society, uh, terrified and fascinated when women are violent. But women are violent, and I think we're fascinated because most of us were raised by a woman. And uh, you know, to think that you could have been annihilated as a child is kind of scary. And uh, so to see a woman that would take up arms or uh, uh, put on a suicide vest and explode other people, it just blows our mind for uh, women are supposed to be the nurturers. They're supposed to be the kind ones. and uh, but that's not always true. I mean, we know that women abuse their children. Uh, it's men that more often abuse women, but women are, are abusers also, and they're also terrorists. 
And they're terrorists for a lot of the same reasons that men are. If they get uh, sucked into uh, looking at grievances around the world, and you know, if they're Muslim, for instance, and get uh, highly agitated by injustice, and a terrorist group pulls them into an ideology, and then they start to believe it's a good idea, uh, they may take part just the same as a man. Um, and they all also may have reasons for wanting to escape their home life. They may be oppressed at home. We find that women as terrorists, a lot of times, um, especially if they're from conservative parts of society, so if it's a militant jihadist uh, groups, they may at least start more on the internet because they're not out joining groups, mixing with men as much. But we certainly found a lot of naive young women uh, take off and travel to Syria. Uh, we also see women in white supremacist and uh, anti-government militias, and they become convinced that we need a white ethno state, that the election's been stolen, um, that they need to enact violence to fight back or to ensure the rights of their children. Um, rape is always used as uh, uh, something to scare people into action, and that works for women as well as men. I don't think it's getting worse. I think we see ebbs and flows of when women are involved. Um, whenever there's conflict, militant jihadist groups uh, tend to use women, but they use them as suicide bombers and as fighters, usually more when they're put in a corner. So in Iraq, when Al-Qaeda in Iraq was being defeated, we suddenly saw a lot of suicide bombers, females, and ISIS did not send very many female suicide bombers until the end, and then they started using them. They used them in their propaganda. They, they claimed that they were fighters, and ISIS used them as um, morality police, and they were really sadistic. And, you know, that women can be sadistic is a surprise, but uh, they can, and they are. And when, when female joins ISIS or Al-Qaeda or other terrorist groups, the motivation to join, is it different than in the case of men or is it similar? It differs. And I don't think that you can say across the board. I mean, I wrote a paper, it's called The Lethal Cocktail of Terrorism. And you can find it on our website. And it uh, basically elucidates this theory of the four things that make a terrorist. But when you look at motivations and vulnerabilities, there's about 50 of them. So, you know, unhappy home life, wanting to escape, uh, uh, falling into a romantic relationship. That can be true for both men and women, but we saw it often for women that uh, once ISIS got going, uh, they wanted to build a state and that required that they weren't going to be able to keep young men with them unless they had women. So they had to uh, talk women into coming and they also kidnapped the Yazidi women to be sex slaves. And so a young man might be motivated to join thinking, well, I can get married or they'll give me a sex life. Where a young woman might be motivated to join because she's being wooed over the internet by a fighter who looks charismatic and is telling her that she can live in a beautiful um, uh, villa and she's gonna have whatever she wants. And, uh, you know, I, I think maybe one of the main differences between men and women 
is that women make their decisions relationally. So, um, I mean, in general, and are more likely to judge values in relationship. So, you know, this whole Colbert values thing of if your mother's dying, is it, um, is it uh, immoral to break into a pharmacy? And a lot of women would say, you know, they would say, no, of course not. And uh, where men might be more logical about it. And so if you can appeal to women and make it relational, that's, that's, uh, that catches them. Absolutely. Because I was thinking, you know, when man has that, for instance, special vest for explosions, you know, and, and he thinks, oh, I'm going to be a hero for everyone. So I wanted to get into the women mind, in, you know, if it's the same system, if women can feel, I want to be a hero for other women. There's plenty of cases in talking to terrorists, of female um, terrorists, where they describe exactly their motivations. And, um, and there's uh, cases in ISIS defectors of women and, you know, some of them tricked and uh, some of them trapped inside of ISIS. But, you know, some of them believing that they were going to have great opportunities there. And some of them uh, becoming sadistic uh, members of the Hizbah. Uh, that's the morality police. So you can't just say these factors apply to all women. They're individual and they're different. You know, so... If, for instance, uh, if you're in the UK, Shamima Begum is, you know, those three girls, they probably went off for adventure and believing that, you know, good Islamic state was going to rise up and they were going to take part of it and they were going to marry uh, fine young men. Turned out completely different than that. But, you know, they went and perhaps escaping uh, oppressive futures where they didn't have much say in their future. I see. Let's turn the page now and let's go to your new book, which was released in January 2023. I'm sure that you have it. Yeah, that's it. Homegrown Hate Inside the Minds of Domestic Violent Extremists. That's the official name of the book. And let's start from the basics. Homegrown Hate. Can you please elaborate on what does it mean in your book? Well, what we're finding now is that um, people were so afraid of ISIS, and we should have been, and they did attack inside our country and inside of most European countries. Um, but in the US, the FBI is now saying that the, the most uh, lethal and pressing threat is from homegrown terrorists, from uh, domestic violent extremists, mostly white supremacists and uh, also anti-government militias, and uh, perhaps people on the left end of the spectrum as well. So uh, I decided to pivot and study this. And the, in Europe, a similar assessment has been made that there's less of a threat from groups like ISIS and increasingly a threat from uh, white supremacists and uh, anti-government militias. Right. Let's give it a bit of overview. Like, what is that book about? And I picked a few chapters. Uh, first one is Warrior for My Race. What can viewers find in this chapter? 
Okay, well, first of all, I'll tell you the book is, um, I wrote the book, but I had a lot of uh, help for the research from everyone at our center. Okay. So I give a shout out to Molly Ellenberg, who uh, quoted all of the data and analyzed the data. It's based on 51 interviews. And uh, the interviews are all about two hours long. And you were asking about interview settings. In this case, they were taken over Zoom. Oh. And yeah, so I took advantage of COVID and stayed home and interviewed white supremacists. And uh, I, I didn't know if that would work, but it did. And again, we made uh, counter-narrative videos of them. So you can go on our ICSVE YouTube channel and look at um, our Escape Hate playlist if you want to hear from them. I think there's about 40 videos that we've made. And I should say, as far as our counter-narratives, we have two websites sites, Escape Hate and The Real Jihad, which people who watch our videos, we direct them then to the website where they get more information, uh, possibly find a way to get out of these kind of groups and, um, and can watch all the rest of the videos. But the book's based on 51 interviews and it's looking at uh, how do people fall into this? How do the groups operate? Uh, what are the groups of today? What are the groups in the past? Uh, and how do they all recruit? What is their normal experience inside of these groups? And um, if they get disillusioned or disengaged somehow, do they de-radicalize? How do they de-radicalize? What are the obstacles to leaving and de-radicalizing? And um, how can we promote that? So that's basically the book. And one of the things that we identified in our research and that I put in the book was the process of directed hate. And directed hate is that we found that in our sample of 51, most of these people joined for their own needs. They needed a group to belong to. They wanted to feel protected. Uh, they wanted to feel some sense of purpose, uh, significance, uh, dignity. So they were making up for terrible childhoods, um, just finding something that worked for them. And the group uh, began to say to them, well, you're special because of your whiteness and you're in it because you're white and you should cut ties from anybody else and you should start to understand the history of the white race and how important it is to be white and the truth about other races and the truth about Jews. And they moved them through a process of starting to uh, hate others that were not white and uh, to accept violence against them as an answer. So we called this process, process directed hate. And most of the chapters uh, go deep into one interview and they may discuss other interviews alongside of that person. So Warrior for My Race is about Sean Giuseppe. And uh, he's a really cool guy, but he was not a cool guy in his youth. And uh, unfortunately, he was uh, sexually molested when he was a little kid. And he told authorities that he had been molested. He told his father. And um, the response was basically nothing. And he ended up turning into a juvenile delinquent because nobody did anything. And so he, he wasn't treated properly for what had happened to him, and there was no justice. And he fell into. Um, Aryan nations. And he became a skinhead. He 
uh, got indoctrinated, he really felt his sense of belonging and purpose and dignity was with them. So imagine a kid that's really hurt and is acting out all of his anger and being told every time he acts out, see, you're evil. I mean, those weren't the exact words that were said to him, but um, but continually having it reinforced that it's him, something's wrong with him, and then to fall into something that says, no, no, you're great because you're white. And this person that molested you wasn't white. And it's minorities that we have to annihilate. So Sean got into, I think it was the National Guard, and um, he loved the military. He probably would have been a great success in the military, but his um, ideological beliefs got him in trouble. And he was first um, some version of suspended. And uh, then he was ultimately kicked out. And then he went on a rampage and uh, he did a lot of crimes, including attacking a synagogue. And he ended up in max, uh, maximum security prisons. And uh, he got a really harsh sentence. And he finally got out. And he, during his prison time, uh, left the gang and um, did some therapy. He also tried to suicide. And he's out now. And he's um, practicing martial arts. Uh, he may go on uh, to get his education. And um, he wants to do good in the world. And he's Guy. And I should say every chapter, well, not every chapter, but almost every chapter has a video that goes with it. So if you if you read a, in the in the hardcover book, it's just going to say go to Escape Hate. But um, if you read in the Kindle, you can actually click through and uh, it'll take you to uh, Sean's video, which is five minutes. It's his counter narrative video. And it's really cool. It's really cool. That's a multidimensional book anyway. That's fantastic yes. to that's fantastic yeah. to have because I mean it just this one chapter to listen to what's in it, it's it's just fascinating. But I also found neo-Nazi women, which was a shocking title for me. And can you explain us why we are shocked? Or at least I am. <laughs> well, I told you already you don't want to admit that women can be uh, dangerous. And uh, you know, you you want to keep your fantasy that that mom loves me and won't hurt me, and that women uh, will love me and not hurt me. But you know, some women are violent, and uh, women join these groups uh, sometimes because they themselves have been hurt. So one woman in the book uh, tells about her rape story and that she was raped by a Hispanic, and uh, uh, then joined. Uh, uh, the National Socialist Movement and became a propagandist and was uh, believing every word of Mein Kampf and running a radio station program where she promoted uh, Nazism. And some of these women uh, were really serious uh, skinhead fighters and uh, uh, would beat other people up, beat minorities up. And uh, you know, they're, they're not that different from the men. I will say that white supremacist groups tend to be really sexist and they want women to be breeders and they want to follow this kind of chauvinistic view of, oh, we're the heroes, we're gonna make this white ethno state and it's gonna make it safe for our women to raise their kids and and for you know white kids to thrive and for the women to stay home and basically serve us. 
and uh, but they view their service as uh, fighting for that ethno state. Okay, and the last chapter I want to mention today is raised by the clan. And I'm thinking, what does it mean? Is it like you have those gangs in the streets and children are raised in that sort of environment? Or clan means something else in the book? Oh, the clan means the KKK. And the KKK is no longer, that's Ku Klux Klan. And that's no longer active as a, as a unified entity in the U.S. It was broken apart um, by legal maneuvers. But um, it still does exist, and it's still active, especially in the South. And that's uh, Shane Johnson's story. I think he was in Ohio or in the Midwest. But he was uh, raised as a little kid in the Klan. His father was a Klansman, a leader. And he was raised also to be a leader. And um, he did some pretty horrible crimes as well and got locked up. He found Jesus. So his is a gospel story that he... He had uh, people that were Christian that took him to revivals. He began to believe that he was someone that could be loved. And uh, and there were a few stories among the 51, the people that were taken to church. Some people where the churching stuck and others where it didn't. But the, the love and the care made the difference because they hadn't been loved and cared for in their lives. And in Shane's case, he stayed Christian. And he became a preacher, and he now works with uh, prisoners. And he says he was using drugs when he did his crime, and uh, he believes that a lot of people end up in prison because they are um, drugged up, and what they really need is to get into rehab programs. So he's convinced authorities in his state to allow his small group uh, to work people into rehab versus getting prosecuted and put into prison. And then he works with them to get them out of white supremacism and also off of drugs. And I would say we heard a lot in the sample of people that grew up with really chaotic childhoods. I learned not to assume that people's parents had ever been married. And um, uh, they grew up with abuse, with their parents doing drugs and alcohol, with uh, multiple people in the home that weren't parents, um, molestation, violence, and of course then a lot of them gravitated to drugs as a way to try to self-regulate. And you know, when you're taking drugs, it usually doesn't have a good result. And if you fall into a hate group and are doing drugs, that's a bad combination. Now let's set up a little bit reading environment for this book. The extremism in the United States, you already described a few aspects of it. What about Europe? Can we compare Europe and the United States in terms of extremism? Or can you see any similarities or big differences between? Well, I think in all of these situations, and I actually know Europe pretty well because I lived in Belgium for seven years. And at the time I was living in Belgium, we were seeing a lot of reciprocal radicalization. So ISIS was coming along and radicalizing people, and uh, far-right groups were gaining traction in response to that and saying, we don't want these immigrants. We, you know, look, they're, they're terrorists and uh, uh, Islamophobic and uh, racist. Living in the UK, you know, there's people that 
go out on the streets and beat up uh, what they call Pakis. And uh, also, we just recently saw in Germany a whole lot of convictions. Um, we saw the, the special forces guy that was trying to do a false flag attack to make it look like it was uh, immigrants that attacked when, in fact, it was he and his group that were going to carry out the attack. And we saw the Reichsberger group voting uh, to take over the, the government uh, on behalf of pulling together a, a old style state. And, you know, in Europe, there's a lot of people mourning and concerned about economics and concerned about losing what was their ethnic culture because they um, brought immigrants in and now it's more of a mixing bowl, a bit like it is in the US and that's new to Europe. And when it was people just doing the bottom rung of society and uh, coming as guest workers, maybe it was acceptable, but now they're there to stay, they're bringing their family members. And there's been issues of integration and there's been issues of, um, of terrorist recruitment. So people are scared. And the, the knee-jerk reaction to that, if there's groups that, uh, that foment that kind of thing and spread propaganda, is to be anti-immigrant, uh, uh, whites-only, um, angry, and uh, perhaps even uh, pushing for violence. Right. And can we identify a specific element of extremism as the, let's say, most trendy or emerging at the most dynamic rate at the moment when we speak about the United States? Is it more about race, religion? Is it about hate crime? How can you assess that? I would say that extremism is really mainlining. And uh, we're finding that we have really polarized news. The Republican and Democratic Party are really split. And uh, instead of people being middle of the road and finding lots of commonalities. Uh, people are out on the fringes. And then QAnon has uh, played with a lot of people in the Republican Party. And we've even seen Donald Trump endorse uh, QAnon ideology. I think he recently said that Hitler wasn't all bad. Um, okay. So, and you know, when Charlottesville happened, when we had that attack in Charlottesville, he said there were a lot of good people there. And no doubt there were good people there, but um, you know he he just continually refused to denounce white supremacism, and and he plays with it, and he plays with it because these are groups that may come to the elections, and then there's this whole thing of where ex-president Trump uh, claimed that the election was stolen, so you know that's what January sixth arose out of. Uh, believing that people, you know, again, this defensive jihad, believing that they were defending democracy by overrunning the capital and breaking laws and engaging in violence. So those are all worrisome. QAnon has spread around the Western world. And I would say probably the most worrisome thing is how fractionated we're becoming and that people are very quickly and easily being convinced to move to violence. So we really have to work on disinformation and we have to work on uh, 
helping people to believe that our government institutions do function and that the last thing they should do is move to violence. Right. As you were helping to develop programs related to counterterrorism, and as you already elaborated on them, are there programs at the moment in the United States that are developing to tackle extremism? Well, there's all kinds of arguments about this. And um, so that's always uh, difficult. Uh, when the Black Lives Matter protesters came out to the street and did a lot of property damage, and when Antifa came out, a lot of people were very disturbed about that, as they probably should be. And um, but it created a backlash. So um, some attempts to teach about racism um, have been thwarted. Uh, my view is, I think it probably, I used to say eighth grade, but now I say sixth grade, given how kids all have phones and are all on the internet, uh, we need to inoculate them against extremist groups and extremist ideologies. We need to teach them in the classroom. This is what a white supremacist says. This is what ISIS says. Uh, this is what QAnon says. And can you see the fallacies in their logic? Can you see this statement is simply not true? And teach it in a very cognitive way so that later when they encounter it on the internet and it's presented to them with a lot of emotion and trying to motivate them into violence, they'll think more critically about it and hopefully not be moved into violence. So that's something we absolutely need to do across the board. We also need to uh, stop child abuse. We need to have much better care of kids that are abused. Because in our sample of uh, these 51 white supremacists, we found so much child abuse and so much uh, childhood vulnerability that simply was not dealt with. Sean, Sean's uh, case being a good example. I don't think Sean would have ever uh, become an extremist if someone would have dealt with and stopped the abuse and uh, giving him good trauma treatment. Right. Last but not least is a question about your center. It's very authentic in terms of videos and materials you publish. And like how many people you have or, or how, how you guys are organized because the stuff that you're publishing is just incredible. And I, I'm thinking, what, how is this possible even to manage, you know? Okay, we're a small think tank and uh, we're researchers. And uh, we are a think and do center. So we don't want to do research just for the sake of research, although that's interesting. We want it to translate into real world products and real world um, solutions. So that's what we work towards. And uh, we've been lucky enough to have the state of Qatar backing us uh, for a number of years and State Department, UN Women uh, gave us money. Um, uh, EU Commission gave us money. So we were very, very lucky for all of that. I remember going out to Facebook once and presenting about our breaking the ISIS brand, and they said, you must have 100 people working on these videos. This is and what I thought. This is what I thought. <laughs> I wish we had 100 people. Uh, we uh, tend to run really. We're, we're between four to eight people. And, uh, and But we work really hard, and we're just very focused, and uh, we do our best. We do take volunteers. Uh, people write to me probably twice a week asking if they can get a job with us. And I tell them, uh, sure, if we get more funding, we'd love to have you. But, you know, without funding, we can't hire people. 
And uh, so anybody that wants to bring their funding with them, welcome. Funders are welcome, please uh, fund our center. Uh, you know, we're, we're a little uh, uh, David against Goliath. Mm. And, uh, That's a good way how to put it. <laughs> and we are uh, authentic. Mm-hmm. And we do take volunteers, but I find a lot of people volunteer and they... And was the center established by you or you are director and the center existed before? No, I'm the founder. You are the founder. I see. I see. So excellent. Thank you very much, Anne, for the excellent interview, for the knowledge we can't find, I would say, anywhere else. Just, just with you and your books, your center, the authentic videos that people can find on the YouTube. I will put all the links into description so you can follow and you can educate yourself because as Anna pointed out at the end of the interview, the educational factor or aspect is one of the most important ones. Without proper education and proper knowledge from people who dealt with terrorists, like Anna who interviewed terrorists, so she knows about mentality, about thinking, about external circumstances, how those people got into the terrorism and Al-Qaeda, ISIS and all the other groups. That's the valuable knowledge that that we should really follow and we should learn from those people. And again, thank you very much for being with us. It was a pleasure to speak with you. You're welcome. And uh, uh, thank you and thank you to your viewers as well. Bye-bye, Martin. And see you next time.